This is Beth Bruno, and you're listening to the Fierce and Lovely Podcast. If you're looking for the voices of strong women with tender hearts who are engaging issues that impact us all, but especially young women, this new series is for you. When COVID started, I paused the podcast and started a monthly membership community for women raising tween and teen girls. Each month we entered into our own stories and our daughter's glory through a relevant topic teen space. I interviewed experts and released them in this private group, and now you get to hear them too. Stay tuned for a lineup of wise thought leaders. I can't wait. Thank you for inviting me into this conversation, um, particularly with moms. It's yeah, a conversation that is very near and dear to my heart. And so while I am not a mom, I have worked with kids my entire life and kids who have experienced a trauma on many different levels um, as a social worker. So for 10 years, I worked doing urban ministry actually. So in a faith-based nonprofit context, working with youth in after-school programs and helping to run them and create different programs that span from kindergarten all the way into high school. And then after that, I moved more into the like secular realm. I worked at a group home. So for teens and preteens who were in transition and that it was a residential facility. So while they were in the process of looking at being placed into um, foster homes or um, re-entry back into their homes, they lived there. And then I also worked in schools doing social work. And my role was as a, a liaison to students who were kind of um, just kind of flagged for different reasons or came into the radar of whether that was teachers, administration, even other students can refer students to this program. It was called a student assistance program that is mandated in the state of Pennsylvania. And in this program with student and parental permission, I would meet with students and do assess like screenings for drug and alcohol, mental health, grief and loss um, issues that might be affecting their schoolwork and their performance academically. And so through that screening process would learn a lot about the stories of these young people. And then through that screening would recommend different services, which were often to see a therapist. Um, and so through those experiences, met a lot of, of teens, particularly teen girls, um, but not all, who were participating in self-harm and self-injury for a variety of different reasons. So I learned a lot um, mm -hmm. from being in that role of how best to learn about what self-harm is and then what kind of services are um, the best types of intervention. Mm -hmm. um, and then through that, got to talk with some parents too. And so, which was really helpful and, mm -hmm. you know, grateful for that bridge as well to be able to connect. Right. 
Wow, that's a lot of great experience. I mean, honestly, you're describing more experience than a lot of counselors and therapists have when a kid like struggling with some form of self-harm walks into their office. I mean, you were in all of these different contexts. So I really appreciate your background coming into this conversation. And I just want to acknowledge that for the women in our community, you know, we're going to have the full spectrum, just like every issue we cover. And there are probably some moms who are already walking this road with a daughter. There are some moms who this is brand new and they are assuming that this would never enter their home. Um, There's probably a lot of us who have girls with friends who are starting to cut And so we're having to navigate those conversations with our own daughters. Um, So everything in between. And I think in light of that, it would be helpful to just kind of start with, with like a big picture explanation of what even we mean when we talk about self-harm, what all falls into that category um, and how we ought to be thinking about it. So can you start us there? Absolutely. Um, And I think for the purposes of this conversation, it would be best to talk about, if you are doing research on this, you will find it with the acronym NSSI, non-suicidal self-injury. Okay. There is a type of self-harm that could lead or is mixed with suicidal ideation. And we can have that conversation um, as well. But a lot of self-harm and injury is actually, the intent is not to take their life. Um, and so there's a, there's a variety of reasons why uh, young people will choose self-harm. And the majority of it is, is, like to, is to deal with their emotions that feel overwhelming to them. There is a hidden pain. There are emotions that they don't know what to do with them or don't know where to take that pain. So for some, and it is different for, for each young person. Um, and I will say that sometimes it's, it's an experimentation. Sometimes it ends up becoming an addiction because of what happens in our brains and when endorphins are released in that process. Um, but a lot of, of young people, it's either a, a release of emotions. So a release of something that is um, causing tension or pain in their lives and um, it's a, it's a move from an emotional pain to a physical pain. And sometimes the emotional pain is much harder to deal with than a physical pain. And we find that in, in context of abuse as well. Hmm. Another reason why um, kids would cut is for control. Maybe they're feeling out of control in their lives for some reason. And so to have control over your body and over your choices feels like they have some type of power where they're feeling powerlessness. Where they feel um, hopelessness, is that what you said? Um, powerlessness. Powerlessness. Yeah, so maybe just f- feeling helpless or powerless in life and for a variety of reasons. And some of that can just be the pressures that teens face today, which are very real and what our generation hasn't gone through. Um, another reason could be a distraction. And sometimes there are difficult situations that they're having to navigate in life. And so it becomes a distraction away from that. And there's this physical pain that um, becomes in their focal point and it's literally an aversion tactic. Um, And then some others 
actually will will um, self harm for the the purpose of feeling alive. Mm. Some young people feel um, numb inside, and so feeling pain is actually a better alternative than feeling nothing. Mm. And so what's so interesting is that the root underneath this behavior is that there is a longing for something better than what they're experiencing. So it's something very human, very, um, usually very good. And they just don't know how to handle um, what they're experiencing. Hmm. And so I think it's, I know when I first learned about particularly cutting and other forms of self-harm, it kind of was mysterious and, and very, like, I, I couldn't understand like, why, why would you want to invite pain on yourself if you are in pain? Right. <laughs> um, so when you look at these underlying reasons about it being more about control or about um, release or about distraction or about feeling alive, then it starts to make sense that there's mm-hmm. something underneath these behaviors that ultimately is what needs to be looked at and explored with these mm-hmm. young people. Mm-hmm. So in that light, would you say that a lot of these kids are depressed or it's not always even associated with depression or anxiety that I'm, I'm hearing it's not always one in the same? Correct. Yeah, I think so. Um, I think that there are, there are young people who cut because there's these underlying feelings of, of anxiety and depression for sure. Sometimes it is more um, peer related, wanting to fit in. Um, wanting to get attention where they might feel like they don't have it. And so that is kind of another reason that can be attached where maybe it's not so much emotional as it is more about, you know, image or just what they are, the other desire to want to fit in, which is a, is a very teen thing. They are forming their identity in this time in their lives, which are mostly their identities mostly formed around peer interactions and so it makes sense why that can also be a reason. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So is that a common thing that there would be like it's trendy or that a group of friends yeah. would kind of experiment with that together? Yeah, it can be. And I know that when I was even looking into referring to, to services and like what kind of interventions are helpful, there is research out there that says to be cautious of group therapy and of do, cause I was able to lead groups as well in schools um, and in the group home. But with particularly with self-harm because it can be trendy and because it can become something that then I wanna do because my friend is doing it. And sometimes group therapy doesn't help um, mm-hmm. because you're seeing other, you're seeing your peers struggling with it and doing it and it can become, um, yeah, it becomes something that starts to be either a competition or just I need to be a part of this. Mm-hmm. And so it is really helpful when young people are, are self-harming that they have accountability. And sometimes that is friends who can hold them accountable who aren't participating in it. Sometimes it can be friends who, who have, who understand, who have self-harmed um, and or struggle with themselves, but they are they want to stop the behavior. So they are working on themselves in that way. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, it is that fine line of will friends kind of help them or make it worse. Um, Right. Right. 
Um, you talked a little bit about addiction that for some kids, it is just experimental. And then for some, it becomes addictive. And you said, because of what goes on in the brain, can you talk a little bit about that? And maybe even what are some warning signs that, that that's really what's going on now? Yeah, sure. Um, and I will say just to kind of back up too with social media, social media is a huge part of also why it can be trendy. Um, and so, or even, you know, if somebody's a young person sharing their story on a social media platform and like, I've done this to as a form of release, or I, I've done this, or I do this because of this, it can give other young people an idea, oh, I'm struggling with this pain as well, so maybe this will help me. And I have worked with <clears throat> teens and preteens who have tried it and experimented because of that logic, and, and then they tell me, that just doesn't work for me. I, I can't do that again. I, that doesn't, I don't feel a release in that. I don't want to do that. I have had, have had other young people just say, this helps me so much. And then it becomes like an addictive behavior. Mm. Part of that is because yes, like endorphins are being released in your brain. Um, and that's connected to the emotions that they're feeling and then how this in whatever function that it has, whether that's to release emotions, to feel a sense of control, to feel a sense of being alive, to be distracted, it works for them in, in that moment. And then it can become an addictive process. Um, because it never lasts and that, that whatever function it's served in that moment, it's not a function that continues. So then it becomes something that can become addictive too, because of that mm -hmm. moment of, right. of feeling whatever they were seeking. Mm -hmm. Is it, would you say that it then takes the shape of other addictions where it requires more pain to, to feel the same release, just like with drugs, it requires, you know, a bigger hit to experience the same high. Yes, that can happen. And so in thinking about looking at signs and, and how do we look for this? Um, I'll kind of just go over some of them. And of course, this is a precursor. If you're seeing one or even two of these signs, it doesn't necessarily mean um, that they are self-harming. It could also mean that they tried it once and were like one of those young people that said, it just doesn't work for me. Um, but some signs to look for are um, like covering the skin, covering your body in ways that aren't normal or don't fit with weather patterns or what they normally wear. And so if they're wearing sweatshirts and long sleeve shirts in the middle of summer or um, are normally a kid that just wears shorts inside all the time and then they start wearing long pants. Um, so any kind of change in behavior like that um, is something to look for unexplained, <clears throat> unexplained wounds or scars, um, or frequent like accidents that keep happening are also something to look for. Um, because they will try to explain it away, particularly if it's something like cutting. Um, but it doesn't, it doesn't just have to be cutting. It can be burning the skin, erase, using an eraser to erase your skin to, to the point of, um, exposing, you know, blood. Um, and, so just looking for kind of scars or wounds that mm -hmm. seem out of place. Um, blood stains on clothing, towels, bed sheets. It can be finding sharp objects like razors, knives, needles, glass shards, bottle caps, things that, um, you know, in their belongings, in their room that just kind of might give question to why they're there. 
Um, other signs can be connected more to their emotional state. So if they're wanting to be alone a lot more or kind of behind closed doors or feeling more isolated or irritated. Um, and those can be warning signs just from maybe signs of like depression or anxiety or just being in their room struggling with how to deal with this pain and not wanting others to see. So those are kind of some signs to look for. Mm-hmm. Um, that, you know, that could be there. Right. The other ones would be seeing conversations um, or hearing conversations with friends or things like that as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's helpful. So let's say that a mom sees something, sees one of those or starts to worry um, or might even be listening to this right now and kind of considering the state of their home, the, the anxiety levels perhaps in their family right now, and perhaps even thinking, yeah, my daughter probably feels a lot of lack of control and power. So Mm -hmm. now she's really worried, even listening to this conversation. What do we do? What, how do we begin to walk this out with our, in our own home? This is part of the conversation that gives me a lot of hope and, mm-hmm. and that I love to engage in because I think it is absolutely normal to feel all kinds of feels as a parent if we are suspecting and or finding some type of evidence of this. Um, so I think the, the first thing that we have to think about is where are we? I think we can rush as parents to kind of be become then hyper-focused on this and hyper-vigilant on the child when actually the first thing that we need to do is to assess where we are and start with us. Mm. What are we feeling? Are we feeling shame? Are we feeling shocked, disgusted, confused, scared, guilty? All kinds of feelings can arise in us. And then we can project that onto our kids as we are having conversations with them. So I think it's the first thing is just to be aware of the feelings that we are feeling and just to normalize all of this, Mm. you know, these feelings would be normal to feel. Um, And the feelings that our our teens and our kids are going through are also normal to feel. And I know that I'm, um, I think that the moms in this group listening are um, from a faith community, Mm -hmm. right? And so I'm identify as Christians and I do as well. And I think, um, I just wanna touch on the, the concept of shame because self injury has a lot of shame attached to it. Mm-hmm. And, and if we are parents discovering this, there's a lot of shame attached to that as well. And I think understanding the nature of shame is important. So shame wants us to hide, to cover up, to isolate, not tell anybody. And so coming from that lens and just remembering that that will actually make it worse. That starts a shame cycle. And so if our, if our child is experiencing pain and they are self-harming and then they have more shame put on top of that, then it increases their pain. And we can just kind of be stuck in a shame cycle um, and even for ourselves as parents too. So I know that sometimes in, in church circles and in faith communities, we have a hard time with that. We have a hard time engaging with emotions and, and shame and being able to normalize Um, our feelings and kind of open up the conversation by first saying, it's okay that we all feel this way. And it just sort of decreases some of the the initial 
fear and and the initial desire to just kind of shut it down and so we have to stop this activity these behaviors we can't tell people and so I really just um if that's something that you're feeling even hearing these words just know that that's normal to feel that way but also you know this might be where as moms and and this um caregivers, we can kind of take note of that and start there. Um, educating ourselves is important too. And <clears throat> understanding more about the nature of, of self-harm helps us to understand, you know, where our teens might be coming from. And just and holding a posture of non-judgment and curiosity, I think is super important. And mm -hmm. that kind of goes along any lines. I mean, even the conversations that you have you have been having with with your community around maybe substance abuse or unsafe sex and, and, and just sexuality and, and all of these things that teens are navigating, I think it's so important to have a posture of non-judgment and curiosity going in, which is really hard to do. Mm -hmm. um, but I would kind of, you know, starting with questions of like, although I've been a teenager before, I have never been a teenager in this generation. If you've, if you've never asked our teens, it could be a helpful start just to say, what is being a teenager like for you? What do you like about it? What is really hard about it? What are the pressures that you are facing right now from your peers and from society and from me, from um, the, their places of social influence? And I think that that just, you know, getting into their world helps us to have empathy and helps us to understand what they're what they feeling. Um, and if a teen, because I think creating safety, becoming a safe person for our teens to talk to is the utmost importance. I have worked with kids my whole life. And if they're going elsewhere to find their answers because they don't feel safe at home, they will get all kinds of answers everywhere else. But parents are so informative in, in these growing up years and as they're working through their identity. So I think the more that we can just non-judgmentally open up the conversation for them, we become safe people. And mm -hmm. for them to come to us and say, actually, mom, I'm struggling with this. I have a friend who's doing this. I don't know what to do. Um, and so I just think that's super important. And so if a teen is open and, and kind of discloses about self-harm, whether they have experimented or actually really stuck in a behavior that they may or may not want to get out of at the moment, um, just kind of remaining... Uh, remaining curious and, and asking questions, avoiding shaming them, and also not focusing on the behavior right away, unless, of course, um, there is any type of fear about suicide ideation, which can be another conversation. But otherwise, it's kind of looking at the roots underneath and kind of asking questions around what is this doing for you and like what is what are you feeling underneath? Um, if they're not open and are kind of maybe closed off or you're just not getting much from them. It's also helpful to ask, um, are there things that you would like to share, but that you are just uncomfortable sharing with me? And if so, how can we find you a safe person to talk to? And that could be a therapist, a coach, a teacher, um, a mentor, somebody at church, an aunt, an uncle. Uh, and, when I've worked with parents, um, the parents who were willing to say, you know, if it's not me that they feel comfortable talking to, then it can be somebody else. And just being able to open that up um, 
again, that, that moves against shame and that leaves room for, for healing to happen, for conversations to happen. Mm-hmm. And I just think that's super important and um, really hard to do. But I think that that begins a process of, of really starting to deal with the underlying issues mm-hmm. of why they're self-harming to begin with. Yeah. Those are great. <laughs> and I'm, I'm just thinking for mom's sake too, to have someone else that she's going to be able to talk with and, and be know that that person is safe for her too, right? That that person is not going to judge her or her parenting or her daughter or, you know, that, that she knows in the back of her mind, okay, later today, I'm going to call <laughs> so-and-so and they're going to hold this with me right now. I need to be calm and curious and listen and explore, but I'm going to go panic with my friend later or my husband later, or my therapist later. I just think that's feels vital to even name that now, right? Long before we get to that day where we need to have the panic phone call that we identify who will that be for me. And I'm, I mean, I'm by, I'm studying to become a therapist, but that's part of the reason is because of the work that I have done and just recognizing how important therapy can be for kids for families. And so what's interesting is as we kind of open up these conversations with our kids, it might reveal some stuff that we have to deal with as a family or some stuff that's in me or in my spouse or, in, you know, and so I think being able, being willing to do that work is so important. And again, it goes back to sometimes we grow up in families where mental health is not spoken about. It's very stigmatized. Sometimes we are in faith communities that mental health is, is stigmatized. And I, that was me. That was my story in many ways. And so working through those stigmas and recognizing we can stuff our emotions for as long as we live, but they're, they're going to find an outlet somewhere. Mm-hmm. And so understanding how to have emotionally healthy lives and to develop emotionally and being able to um, avoid those shame cycles around that is super important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it sounds like, so after let's, the conversation starts and mom is, does well and is curious and calm. Daughter starts you know, confessing that she's numb, that, she, I mean, this, and this year of all years, right. That she's just too much has happened, too many disappointments, too many ups and downs. She's flatlined emotionally. Um, and this makes her remember that she still lives. Yeah. So in some ways it's survival in some ways, it's actually And this, I say this very cautiously, but in some ways it feels like a gift as an alternative to taking her life or doing something more drastic, right? How do we enter into that? Like you're surviving and that is beautiful, right? I mean, in light of what you've described to me, you are surviving. At what point and how do we begin to talk about maybe some healthier survival skills and helping her transition to that. Yeah. Because what you're doing in that is saying is not demonizing emotions and you're actually recognizing that the function that the, the function that self-harm serves is because underneath there is this desire for good things. And in this instance, feeling alive, 
And that is to be like honored and, and acknowledged. And so um, I think, you know, for sometimes we just even verbal affirmations to our young people, we forget to do these things, but frequent, I love yous. Thank you for sharing this with me and being vulnerable with me. It is so hard to be a teenager, but I'm committed to walking with you in what you are feeling and what you are going through. Um, and then also helping them to find what works for them. And if, if self-harm is something that is really something that they are struggling with, um, and it's not, it wasn't just a one-time experimentation, then I do suggest therapy. I do suggest um, somebody neutral to kind of work with them on these underlying emotions and how to cope. Um, and their therapist might suggest other things as well, but these are things that can be done at home, painting, drawing, journaling, music. Um, if, if this self-harm is, is a specific target on the body, so what would help their body to feel alive or to feel uh, release or to feel like they're in control? So maybe it's learning something new. Um, maybe it is taking baths and becoming uh, you know, a frequent bath taker. Maybe it's just making, maybe it's buying a pet. Maybe it's something that they can feel. Maybe it's a weighted blanket um, or massage or helping them to identify who their safe people are to call. Mm. Um, Sometimes it is helpful if, if it's a form of release and it functions as, um, as a release, then holding ice cubes where, the, where they normally would cut um, because that has a level, level of pain to it to hold ice or to run it over that, that area. Uh, chewing something that has a very strong taste and is not very pleasant. Um, taking a rubber band and snapping it on your wrist or on the area that they, they normally self-harm in. Um, writing, using a red Sharpie and, and writing on your arm or your leg, whatever the area it is mm. where they would normally cut or burn or erase. Um, like stress balls are helpful, punching cushions, like a mm. lot of these things, ripping, ripping things up, making noise, exercise. Um, there's a lot of ways that can, you know, help young people to get into their bodies in ways that are healthy mm -hmm. and or feel a sense of discomfort and pain um, mm. in ways that are healthier. Mm. And there's a great organization called To Write Love on Her Arms. Mm -hmm. um, and it's an acronym that should, um, you search for, but if you just Google that and they started in, I think 1990, um, just with the conversation and they're an organization that provides a lot of research and, and blog posts and and lists of resources and stories and so that's also i think they were the ones that kind of made um the suggestion of, of to write with a sharpie on your arm mm -hmm. you know, yeah looking at alternative ways you know melissa i'm thinking as you're listing those just all of the things that we as adults already do that are acceptable or even trendy but in some ways are trying to accomplish the same thing. Like, like I'm taking my daughter to a smash lab next week. Smash labs are all the rage right now, at least where I am. And is that not just a way to release, you know, pent up emotion to, to scream, to be violent in a acceptable, you know, acceptable way? 
in an ex- ridiculously expensive, socially acceptable way. Yeah. <laughs> You're just throwing plates. In fact, she's bringing her own plates. Um, yeah. or- I did summer through plates um, at the beach off a cliff, you know, like it was such yeah. a helpful release. Yes. And I think of, I now have this acupuncture mat. Oh, have you heard of these? I have. I have. They're, they're literally like beds of needles. I forget how many hundreds of little tiny and you lay on it because it stimulates blood to your back and it's supposed to loosen your back and help you sleep better. And it's worked for me. Mm. It's painful. I mean, it is a very painful 20 minutes (laughs) of laying on that. That's an excellent idea Mm -hmm. that could work. Right. And, and to think, so when moms are doing this stuff to care for themselves, then your kids see that it's important. They don't become this problem that has these emotional problems that are bad and need mm-hmm. to be dealt with like a problem. But when we start to normalize that we all experience emotions, that's part of being human. And then if they see us modeling that, taking care of ourselves and finding mm-hmm. healthy ways and being honest about when we, when we go into unhealthy ways, whatever those things might be for us, super helpful to kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And I love, I love just reminding ourselves that shame will keep our kids bound and hiding and us as well. And so the more that we just bring it out into the light, name it, bless those good desires that are underneath, and then just continue to journey alongside of our girls to find healthier releases. um, I just, it does feel hopeful. Yeah. It doesn't feel nearly as dark as even entering into this conversation half an hour ago felt like it feels like this is not the end of the world. This is actually, this can become a really beautiful thing if we handle it well. Absolutely. And I can tell you from experience, just watching parents mm-hmm. alongside their kids in this way and a world of a difference. Mm-hmm. We are afraid and shut down and shame it. And um, Absolutely. And so it's a really hard thing to do and it's scary, but it absolutely has good fruit. And in the end, the end of the day, this is their journey. And if they can learn how to find healthy ways, if they can learn how to not shame themselves, I mean, self-harm, part of that is it's a direct, it's directing pain at yourself. So if they are feeling more, yeah, if they're feeling bad about even doing this behavior, that's just that can increase, um, and so being able to just have these conversations and, and open that up helps them to, to figure out what works for them. And that sets them up on a journey to be able to navigate hard things in life mm-hmm. yeah, when you're not, when we're not in our lives um, in the same way. Yeah. Melissa, well, so thank you so much for sharing with us today and really giving us some helpful things to think about. Thank you. Thank you for um, inviting me to this conversation. And I'm, I'm just so grateful what you are doing because I think having a community and doing this together is a huge um, way to bring healing to our own lives, to our kids' lives, to help navigate these things and walk alongside them. So thank you for the work you're doing. Mm-hmm. Thanks for listening today. If you're curious about something you heard, check the show notes for links to learn more. And perhaps you'd like to check out one of the Fierce and Lovely mini courses for a deep dive into a particular parenting topic. That link is in the notes too. 
Pearson Lovely is a proud partner of the Restore Universe, where like-minded practitioners and programs are all infused with the Restory approach. Curious? Check us out at RestoryUniverse.com.